0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Lila Rose Show. This is Lila Rose, and I am looking forward to today because we're going to be diving into the mailbox, a lot of the questions and comments I've gotten from some of you that I really am looking forward to talking about, and I also want to follow up on last week's episode, which was five myths about sex. I got some interesting feedback from some of you or questions, and I also wanted to say, a couple other things that I felt that I could have included in this review of what I think are our culture's biggest or some of our culture's biggest misconceptions around sex. I also wanted to let you all know the next episode, so the one after this one, I will be doing a little bit of a deep dive into the border situation. This, I think, does affect us personally because it has to do with really how we are to treat immigrants. Uh, and also it has to do with some of the political, I think, lies and the confusion that is really reached a fever pitch in media. So I'm looking forward to doing that. I will be sharing more when we get there, but look forward to that. That's going to be on the border situation and really what our perspective is food for thought for our perspective and what our perspective can be as well as how we should look at immigration in general and what, what is the, whether you're a Christian as a Christian, what that means. And then also from a perspective of human rights. So I look forward to that, looking forward to doing that next week. But for today, I want to talk a little bit more about sex myths, the five sex myths that I brought up on last episode, but talking really more positively about what is sex supposed to be about, share some thoughts there, and also some of the comments I got from you guys or questions about other myths that you see as problematic in our culture. And then I'm going to hit the mailbox and go through a bunch of really interesting comments and questions I've gotten from some of you. Thank you, by the way. I love getting emails and direct messages on Instagram and comments from all of you you are, i have a lot of very thoughtful people who listen to this podcast who really take time to think about not just cultural and political issues but about how we should live our lives what the best way to live a life of purpose and meaning and for many of you you're christians you're catholics how to live out your faith strongly so i love getting your thoughts. Keep them coming. You can always email me at thoughts at lilarosehow.com or of course you can message me on Instagram. Again, I try to get back to everyone at least most of the time. I do my best, but I absolutely love getting comments. So to the five sex myths, I talked about this last week. I went through what I see are a lot of misconceptions around sex in our culture Um, This idea that sex has nothing to do with children or shouldn't have anything to do with kids, that sex is just about consent, as long as there's that bright line of saying yes to sex, then you should be fine, Um, or about how sex is safe if we just use contraception. And I walked through how actually many of these things are misunderstood, that there's no such thing as completely safe, quote unquote, sex that Anytime you have sex and you're not prepared for pregnancy, then despite the methods you use, or you can still get pregnant. And also, this idea that sex should—why is sex need to be safe in this way? Isn't it natural to be able to conceive children in sex? And shouldn't you be able to trust your "quote unquote" partner, the person you're having sex with, so you're not worried that they're going to give you a disease, or you're not worried that they're going to leave you the next day? <laughs> that would probably be ideal. And that brings me to what I wanted to say, which is, what is sex supposed to be? How is sex designed? And what I'm about to share is what I think the science reveals about sex. It's also, full disclosure, what my faith teaches, what the Catholic Church teaches. And it's also what most of Christian or Protestant denominations teach. Um, But I think that it's very much written into the design of what sex is biologically as well as physiologically And I think it makes for, when you look at the research, much happier, more successful relationships. And what it comes down to is sex can do two things. Sex can bond two people together, and it does do this. It can bond them together through the pleasure that's experienced, through the intimacy that is is experienced, literally through the hormones that are exchanged, through oxytocin that literally bonds you to that person. That's why it has such an incredibly intimate and personal effect on people who have sex because you really feel bonded to that person. You really feel connected to them. And sex is designed biologically to do that. And then the second part of sex, so that's the unity. Sex is designed to bring two people into unity with each other physically. And then I also think spiritually and the emotional component of that is connected to the spiritual but it's also, sex is also designed to bring human life into the world. That's how new souls enter the world. It's pretty phenomenal and amazing when you think about it, that two human beings have the potential to create a new human life, to procreate, to beget a new human life. It's really amazing. And I think God is involved in every single creation of a new life, too, because there's a soul that's present. But that's really incredible. So if sex can do these two things, it can, it, it's this It's the most powerful physical force that can bind two people together in just this sheer intimacy and pleasure that's being shared. And it also has the potential to bring life into the world. So from those two perspectives of its intimacy, its binding power to really bring you into union with another person physically, and it can do so spiritually, as well as its ability to bring life into the world That's why I think it makes so much sense that sex is designed for someone that you have pledged your life to. And you've done that not just in an emotional way, like, oh, I love you forever, but you've actually pledged your life to in a sacrament way, meaning you have done it before God and your community and said, this is my spouse, this is my husband, or this is my wife. And I think that's why, you know, you hear, oh, sex is for marriage. Well, it's sex is for marriage, not because of some arbitrary rule. It's because sex is actually designed that way to bond you with somebody in such an incredibly powerful way and to be able to bring life into the world. So you want to have that intimate relationship with someone that you would want to be the potential mother or father of your children. And you want to be in a relation you want to be able to do that with someone who you know you trust and you know, and you're committed. To knowing and getting to know better, and to sacrifice for the rest of your life, and sex is a part of deepening that relationship. So that's the positive. I think that's beautiful. I, I, you know, when I first started learning about really the spiritual perspective on sex and how it is a the marriage. So it's not sex, but marriage is a sacrament. It's this, it's this manifestation of of God in the world and God's love for all of humanity and Christ's love for the church and. There's so much depth there, and I will do an episode in the future on marriage specifically, but that marriage is includes this sexual component, which is really the act of unity, not just physically, but you can live that out emotionally and spiritually. That just blew my mind. I thought, what a beautiful thing that this is designed that way, and it's a good thing. So it does make me really sad when I think our culture or media or whoever it is cheapens it and makes it less than it is. Because it is so incredible and so beautiful. So that being said, two other sex myths that were sent my way by some of you, which I thought were really, um, you know, really true, and meaning they are myths that are out there and people have been uh, told them for a long time. One of them is that women are happier if they actually don't get married. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there were a ton of news articles, especially in the month of May. So this was last month. A lot of news articles out there saying that we, or women, so for the ladies listening, women are actually happier when they're single and when they don't have children. And it actually makes them, ha- like the happiest ladies are the ones, the brunch women, right? The women in her 30s and 40s and 50s even, who never married, never had to have, you know, marriage and children and all of that. And instead they are happily single the rest of their lives, so first of all, from personal experience, I'm going to say, mm-mm, not true. I have a lot of single friends still. I have a lot of married friends, but I have a lot of single friends. And they are not happy being single. I mean, they are happy in the sense that they're, you know, many of them are confident people and they're very loving people and they have good friendships and good families, but they're all looking for family. And, you know, and and, and caveat here, I'm talking about people who feel called to marriage because I think we're all called to some sort of commitment or community. And spiritually speaking, in the Catholic Church, there are nuns, there are religious, there's brothers, there's sisters, there are, of course, the priesthood, there is a priesthood. So there are other ways to live out, or there's even consecrated uh, virgins who are people that choose to be consecrated. You have to get permission from your bishop. So it's this whole process. But the point is you still live in community and you still live in a, in a, in a, in a lifestyle of sacrifice or self-giving. And people that have not yet found the vocation specifically of marriage or of the religious life or another vocation, it can be very hard for them. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless them, and I absolutely think that some people are allowed to live in a way without a vocation. They may die even before they find the vocation to marriage or the vocation to a religious life or some other specific particular vocation and they might live, they still live a vocation to love and they still live a vocation to serve and to communion. So there's absolutely a lot of people out there before I got married, that was my vocation. I was living a vocation to love, to serve and to grow in holiness. So I say all this to say the caveat's important because if you're one of those people and you're not even sure if you're supposed to get married yet, you're not sure what your quote unquote vocation is, your vocation today is to love to love God, to serve others, to grow in love of God. So that's always our universal vocation. That being said, I know from personal experience that its it can be a cross. It can be a cross to—it can be really difficult to be in that kind of— it can feel like a suspension of your life, like where is, where is the family I'm supposed to create or the community I'm supposed to be really melded to— and you know the some of the friends that i have who aren't married yet that can be a really big cross for them because they feel that they're supposed to get married or they're looking for that that community that 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 spouse ultimately so again only jesus can satisfy for for you listening who are christians and i believe this for all people it is christ alone that satisfies us so no human being can ultimately fill the God-shaped hole in our heart. That being said, we're made for communion. And I think we're all longing for living out that community on Earth. And many, for many of us, it's through marriage. So when these articles came out saying women are actually happier when they're not married, well, <laughs> interestingly enough, though those articles came out last month because this guy wrote a book that came out recently called Happy Ever After. His name is Paul Dolan. So all these articles are actually reporting his research. And Paul Dolan said that married people are happier than most other population subgroups. But then he said that actually, when that's only when the spouse is in the room. And when the spouse is not in the room, then they're quote unquote effing miserable. So he you know, uses that word. He says they're really miserable. So this is actually a direct quote from this guy, Paul Dolan, who is the reason all these articles came out last month because of his book called Happy Ever After. Well, I'm reading right now from a Vox article, and Vox is not the most pro married pro-life, whatever publication out there. It actually can be very hostile. But they are actually critiquing Paul Dolan because they said Paul Dolan got his research totally wrong. So this quote-unquote study, these quote-unquote studies that Paul Dolan was referencing that claimed that women who are not married are happier than women who are or other people who are is actually based on very faulty studies. Not, not that the studies are faulty, but Paul Dolan misunderstood and misread the, the studies that he thought said something else. And the core misunderstanding was in this study, and it's called the American Time Use Survey that Dolan was using, this survey to understand people's happiness levels. He thought that when it said spouse not present, that meant the, the, the spouse was actually physically not in the room. And so that people would basically lie and say they were happy when they were married when they aren't. This is a little complicated, but (laughs) he basically thought people would say that they are happy when the spouse was in the room, but when their husband or wife left the room, or primarily their husband, they would actually say, actually, I'm miserable. So they would be lying, basically. And the Time Use Survey, the American Time Use Survey, supposedly proved this. Well, actually, he totally misunderstood how the survey works. When they said spouse not present, it didn't mean that they were married and their spouse wasn't in the room. It means that their spouse had, I think, died, they were divorced, or they didn't even have a spouse to begin with. So this actually doesn't have to do with married people. This has to do with people that don't have a spouse anymore or never did, which actually adds more proof to the fact that people are not happy when they are alone. They're less likely to be happy when they are alone. So this whole article, I recommend it. It just goes, you can type in Paul Dolan Vox, um, Married Women Are Miserable, if you want, and you can read the article. But he actually directly tackles um, the author of this article, this woman, Kelsey Piper, directly tackles the idea that married women are less happy than unmarried women. And she says that, too, was based on faulty understanding of the survey. And basically, Paul Dolan made huge errors in his book, and his entire thesis was incorrect. So anyways, always double, triple check what you read. It just goes to show the lack of sometimes good reporting and just even this was like an investigative report book about happiness in America and he totally misunderstood how to read surveys and he mistakenly thought that the survey said people who are unmarried are happier than people who are married and it's not true. All right. That is to, be, to bust that myth, this idea that women are happier when they aren't married. It's actually not true. And according to the research, women who are married are happiest, and actually women who are married and who also attend a church service at least once a month are amongst the happiest of women. And I think, I just quick comment on that. I think that the reason for that is because we are happiest when we're connected to the truth of and and the and the love of the universe which is God when we are in union with what we were made for and when we are not when we're living separate, separate when we're living in a divided way. So we're kind of living emotionally and intellectually happily along, but we're not connected to the spiritual, which is the deepest reality I think of life, then there's a deep part of us deep down that's not at peace, that's that's restless. And it's like St. Augustine says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. St. Augustine wrote his The Confessions, which is a really beautiful, powerful book. He's this um, fourth century bishop that was just incredible in the early church. But he says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Deep down, yes, we can have the best marriage we can have, or we can have a great relationship, we can have a great job, great kids, great you know, meaningful work, all these things. And we can have an experience of happiness for sure and joy. But deep, deep down, we're made for something even more. And that's God Himself and only connecting to God. And I think, you know, for me, it's going to Mass. It's receiving the Eucharist. It's delving deeper into my relationship with God. That is really the source of the deepest peace and joy, and that's the source of eternal joy. I mean, that's what happens after death. No matter how great your life is before death, no matter how great your marriage is, no matter how great your kids are, no matter how great your job is, no matter how great your humanitarian work is, whatever it is you're doing with your life, no matter how good a person you are, after death, then what? What happens when you die? What happens when your loved ones die? And I think the, the importance of death in our life is it reminds us that we are not in control. There's something much bigger than us And are we going to find out what that is? Are we going to take the time to discover who God is and to follow him, to obey him, and to want to be part of his, not just plan here on earth, but his eternal kingdom? And I think we're all created for that, to be part of his eternal kingdom. So anyways, I digress, but um, I really loved getting that myth from someone because I liked to talk about how it's not true that women actually are happier when they are married That's not to say you can't be happy when you aren't married. I was happy before I got married. It was hard though. There were hard things about it. And I'm not going to pretend it's easy. Um, marriage isn't easy though. Nothing in life is easy, but I think it all comes back to what are you called to? What are you, what are you, what are you striving towards? Are you trying to live each day for God? for love for others, and then just a matter of trust. I mean, look, I don't even know if I'm going to live to tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but do we trust today to do what we can with what we've been given and to try to learn learn, and get deeper in our understanding and love of God as well as to serve others? I mean, that's really all we can do one day at a time. So we don't know what the future will bring. <laughs> we don't know all of that. But what we can say is that when it comes to society and what we encourage other people to value, I think we can very much say marriage is beautiful and to be highly valued. All right, number two, the second other um, myth that I received that I wanted to quickly comment on, which I actually heard, it's related to one of the um, mailbox questions I'm going to be responding to, but it was, you know, it's not possible for teens to save sex for marriage. So you probably heard this, um, and actually there's a bunch of teens that listen. So we have... All different ages. I think listening to the podcast, which I love, people in their twenties and thirties, adults. We even have a couple older, you know, um, elders, and then we have some teens. And so, this I think is most relevant to teens, or if you have a teen in your life. But this idea that it's not possible for teens to save sex for marriage, I think is really insulting to teenagers. Um, Teenagers are humans too, and they have the ability to be virtuous and to make good decisions. I think sometimes we downplay the potential for teenagers to... Um, to make good decisions and to be virtuous. That doesn't mean teens don't make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We're humans. But I saved sex for marriage as a teen. And it, in part, it was because of my parents. It was because of the way I was brought up. It was because of the friends I had. So I understand those factors can really influence the way you behave when you are a teenager and this is not judgment or condemnation for anyone because no matter what you did in your past again i've said this before it doesn't need to be your present or your future we can all change we all have that power every day to make make a change but um but look i think that teens if they're given the right education and they're given the right encouragement and you know the right influences absolutely they can save sex for marriage nobody's dooming teens to sexual experimentation when they're young i don't think that that you know i know tons of teens who are not sexually experimenting as when they're young. And, and, and to clarify that, you know, I think teens are curious. I think human, humanity is curious. I think there's a, a desire to learn and certainly to get romantically involved and, you know, want to date or have crushes and all of that. But I don't think it needs to lead to sex. I don't think it needs to lead to sexual activity. And I'm really upset at the organizations out there, the corporations out there, quite frankly, like Planned Parenthood, which is telling little teens, not just teens, but like 10-year-olds to experiment sexually and saying, it's okay and it's good for you. No, it's not healthy for you. It's not good for you. Sex is very powerful and has a huge moral value to it and spiritual value. It's not just some biological thing you do. That's another sex myth. And I think teens, when they're given the right encouragement and education, they can make decisions to say, look, I want to save sex for marriage. That's what I think it's made for. That's what will make me happiest. That's what will protect me the most from the 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 you know sexual bonding that I'm not ready for, children, obviously, the disease that's rampant, an infection that's rampant in our country, and say, look, I want better for myself and for my future spouse. And I know a lot of teens that can do that. So I think we just need to ultimately up the standard here and say, look, we can do better and teenagers deserve better than to be told they're kind of like animals that have to go off of their impulses and their instincts because they're not. They're human beings. And yes, there's a lot of hormone changes and, you know, more risky behavior that teenagers can tend to, but that doesn't need to translate into going and just having sex. And I think that actually It goes against really an innate sense of modesty that a lot of teenagers have to just go out there and have sex. I think especially a lot of girls, teen girls who have sex, they're not having sex because they're like, woohoo, we're going to have fun and have sex. I think for a lot of teen girls, it's peer pressure and for boys, it's peer pressure. It's feeling like they're weird if they don't. And it's also desire for love and intimacy and acceptance. I mean, some of these teens, I think sometimes they're not feeling loved at home. They're not feeling... You know, engaged parents sometimes, and so it, it, so it can it can lead to it can lead to more promiscuous activity outside the home. So these are all factors to consider. But the bottom line is, I think it's absolutely possible for teens to save sex for marriage. And I think that if you're a teenager listening. Good for you. You can do anything you set your mind to, and don't don't let the adults in the room talk down to you. If that's the messages you're getting, whether it's from the culture or from school teachers or whoever, and and your peers, you know, you be the leader among your peers. You know, you be the one that shows your peers that actually you're serious about your life, and you're going to have a lot of fun and have a lot of great friendships. But this is not the time for you to be having sex because that's something you really see as precious and valuable, and you're going to say that for your future wife, wife, or husband. I think there's, you know, a lot of people, maybe they'll make fun of you in a moment, but there's deep respect. I think a lot of people will have for you. All right. Now to the mailbox. Um, I'm really excited about the mailbox because there's some really great, uh, questions or just comments in it. So first of all, I got a question. I got a few of these questions. I've gotten a lot of feedback and notes from you guys. So thank you. This was both through direct messages on Instagram and through the email account thoughts at But anyways, a few of you asked, how young is too young to date? So this was my first episode on dating. I shared six principles for dating. Um, I was really pleased to hear that it was helpful for a lot of you. So how young is too young to date? And a few of you asked this and you are teenagers asking it or just others because you are parents, or you're just curious what my thoughts are. So first of all, I am not going to be the expert on each of your personal lives. I can only share principles, my own experiences and stories, um, share the research that I have, obviously share about my faith and the faith. But I'm not going to be able to give detailed, personalized advice for each person's situation because every situation is going to be different. Um, I will share a couple guidelines. And, And by the way, I highly recommend for anyone listening, especially if you're navigating the world of dating whether you're 15 years old or you're 35 years old to have not just good friends that you believe are on the right path trying to become good people of of God and virtuous people but that you are also you have people in your life who are mentors. For me mentors have been so essential because they get to people that you're accountable to, spiritual guides. I mean, I had my I got my first spiritual director when I was 19 years old and it transformed my entire life. Somebody that I came to know very closely, they got to know me. I met with them regularly. They knew everything about me. I wasn't hiding from them. And we had a shared plan for how I wanted to grow in my faith and how I wanted to grow in virtue. And I think that's so important because having those sorts of guides and then also just having, you know, whether it's like a, a father or a mother who you're close to or, you know, an aunt or an uncle or just an older brother or sister or somebody that's like a mentor in your life who can get to know you really well somebody whose opinion you trust and respect, somebody who themselves is living a life that is virtuous and wise, a life of prudence. I think that that is the best way to help navigate all of the ins and outs of something like a dating relationship, to have guides who can help you, as well as, of course, doing it directly with the person you're dating. So that would be my first piece of advice is, look, I cannot be... I do not have all the answers. You all you all know that. Um, not, no one does, except I think God himself. And one of the best ways to access wisdom is to have somebody accompany you who is very wise. That being said, a couple thoughts on how young is too young to date. As you guys know what I said in that episode on principles for dating, you know, dating is about what? Dating is about, yes, growing as a person, you can have fun, all of these things. But the ultimate purpose of dating is to discover with another person, to discern with another person if you are called to marry them and then to make that decision whether or not to marry them um, or to not date them anymore. And yes, that sounds like a really big deal for a first date. I'm not saying on the first date you're like, okay, are we called to get married? Because you're just getting to know them. <laughs> um, but applying this to teenagers dating... How likely is it that a teenager is going to be able to get married anytime in the foreseeable future? Well, for some of them it might be it might be possible. Some teens, you know, they're planning to get their career in order, go to college, you know, my brother, for example, he got married at 22. He dated in college and got married right when he graduated. I know people that get married fairly young like that um, or even a little bit younger. I think that in those cases, it's important that they're especially mature, they're prepared for marriage, that this is not something that's just an emotional decision or they're feeling pressured into. But so it really depends. Again, it really depends on the person. I think as a general principle, I would encourage avoiding dating in high school and to focus instead on building friendships. And instead of one-on-one dates and things like that, having a lot of time with a group of friends and getting to know people of the opposite sex and growing in friendship with them through groups that doesn't mean you won't have a crush or you won't build a special bond with somebody, Somebody, but it's focusing on getting to know them in a context of friendship. And then as you get older and you're more prepared to actually begin planning for your future marriage, then you can start to maybe be more intentional and specific about dating. So those are just some thoughts. Again, this is not some prohibition on any dating as a teenager because I have seen teens date successfully and actually get married like right after college or even some of them didn't go to college. They found good jobs, and they got married in their early twenties. So I do think that that is a possibility for some people. But I think the involvement of a community, so a friend group, um, being accountable to you know family, I think is really important. Parents, um, I think that's really key that this is not again come becomes something that is like a like marriage without being married when you're a teenager. I know these relationships can feel really intense sometimes, and that yeah, there's good boundaries and standards, but. Absolutely. I think that teens can get to know each other, members of the opposite sex, and it can even be a form of dating. But I do think parental involvement is really important. And I think that just being really mature and focused on the long term is also really important. So those are just some general thoughts. Overall, as a principle, I think that dating is a very serious thing. Um, meaning, yes, it can be fun and unserious, like when it's dates one, two, three, four, five, whatever. But the point is, it's not just something you do for fun. It's not just something you do hang out it's not just something you do to absolutely not just hook up or anything like that but dating is for discovering if you're supposed to get married so from that perspective i think that if you are very young i would consider spending a lot of time on your friendships (laughs) and a lot of time on your education and growing in virtue and getting to know god better getting to know yourself better and maybe saving dating for when you're closer to when you could actually get married that would be my advice um, those would be my thoughts, but again, everybody's different, and I would highly encourage you talk to parents and mentors, and that you are in a community of people that are on the same path, trying to uh, discover virtue and become the best people that they can be. Next question: How should I vote in a 2020 election? Wow, that's a big question, <laughs> especially because there's like 20 um, Democratic candidates. We don't know who the candidate's going to be yet, but actually, there's a shortcut here because. Yes, there are 20, I think, 21, I don't even know, um, Democratic candidates, and then there's obviously President Trump, who would be the incumbent. And it's very clear that I will not be voting for a single one of those Democratic candidates, no matter who gets the nomination, because from what I understand of all of them, they're all very pro-abortion. And most of them have said this explicitly, so near none of them, not a single Democratic candidate for president has said that they support a single abortion restriction. That Let me say that again, not a single Democratic candidate for president has said that they will support a single abortion restriction. Most of them have said that they support taxpayer funding for abortion. Most of them have said that they oppose all restrictions on abortion. So that means, to clarify, they want abortion for any reason through all nine months up until the moment of birth. and. The Democratic Party platform is this. It is abortion for any reason through all nine months. So this is these are abortions that include killing children who are seven pounds able to be born and survive and be healthy, and giving them lethal injections in the womb and delivering them dead. And then the Democratic Party wants to pay, wants to have taxpayers. So you and me, we have to pay for other people to have abortion. And I think one of the reasons there are so many abortions in America is because it's so accessible. It's like seeing like, oh, getting, you know, your ears pierced, just go get an abortion. And women are feeling very fearful and, and, and pressured. And so it's just this quick fix, 500 bucks, go get an abortion. Or even under the Democrats, it would be free. Taxpayers pay for it. Just go get an abortion. And that is incredibly horrific. It's horrific for the baby. It's so damaging for so many women and girls. And would be fathers, it's cheapening, like treating life as so cheap and worthless like garbage. And it's what the Democratic candidates support. I wrote an opinion piece on this for The Hill recently, and I actually evaluated a bunch of the leading candidates. So I talked about, you know, Kamala Harris, and she is extremely pro abortion. She actually tried to prosecute David Delayden, the brave activist exposing Planned Parenthood selling body parts. She actually as Attorney General of California before she ran for Senate and then now is for running for, to be the nominee for president, she actually criminally convicted him. She had actually, to clarify, she sent her state agents to raid David Daleiden's apartment in Southern California, and she never investigated Planned Parenthood. She actually had a Planned Parenthood petition on her Senate campaign website saying, support Planned Parenthood. So Kamala Harris is so in the bag with the abortion industry. The same is true for Bernie Sanders. He's 100% pro-abortion. He does not support any restrictions. He wants taxpayer funding for abortion. I mean, Bernie Sanders wants taxpayer funding for everything. (laughs) I think Bernie Sanders thinks that there is unlimited money in the bank and we we can just magically fund everything and it's never going to have any economic ill effect on anyone, which is kind of a socialist idea that there's just you know, spend, 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 make the government control all industries and just give away everything to everybody who wants it. Well, that's the way to first of all, just destroy freedoms for a lot of people and then grind the economy to a halt. And I mean, that's look at Venezuela. They're literally starving and eating dogs on the street because the government took over all the industries in this in, in the country and they Im- basically implemented socialism. So yeah, Bernie Sanders is a self-proclaimed socialist. I digress. I'm talking about his abortion record primarily, but he's very pro-abortion. I mean, we could just go on Joe Biden. I mean, it was so sad. Joe Biden, just a few weeks ago, said that he actually supported the, the Hyde Amendment, the law that says that taxpayer money, federally, federal taxpayer money, cannot be used to directly reimburse for abortion. So Joe Biden seemed to support this and said, yes, actually, we shouldn't force taxpayers to fund abortions. Now, we still fund Planned Parenthood, but, and that money is fungible, so we give Planned Parenthood a bunch of money, and then they commit a bunch of abortions. But at least they can't directly bill the government for abortion. Then, just, I think, 24 hours, Bernie, uh, not Bernie, but Biden flip-flopped on it and said, actually, no, I do support repealing, so getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. So they're all the same. I mean, Pete, boot edge-edge, very pro-abortion. Um, I, who else is there? There's obviously Cory Booker, so pro-abortion. He came out saying men need to stand up for abortion rights. Yeah, men need to stand up for children and women and the protection of both um, the, you know, obviously Elizabeth Warren, extremely pro-abortion Senator Warren, just like Bernie Sanders through all nine months or any reason, pretty much all of them. I haven't seen a single one of them deviate in any way. So differ in any way from the Democratic Party's platform on abortion, which is abortion through all nine months for any reason. So heartbreaking, but I will not be voting for a Democrat in the 2020 election. I can't in good conscience. And I don't think that anybody can. Um, especially if you're a Catholic or you're a Protestant, I think if you're if someone who says that they're a Christian, you cannot vote for a Democratic Democrat in 2020 because they support effectively infanticide, killing full term babies for any reason, and it's just absolutely horrific. That being said, when it comes to well then who do I vote for? I would say, I think it is absolutely acceptable to vote for Trump. You know, he has been pro life. I think that. I will be talking about immigration in the next podcast so we will get into that. But I think that ultimately if you want to write somebody in, if that's what you feel called to do because for whatever for you know your own conscience you're like I can't vote for Trump, I can't vote for the Democratic candidates, then that's up to you. But I would say the 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 red line that I recommend, that I actually say is that you we cannot vote for somebody who is so pro-abortion, like any of these Democratic candidates. And it's really sad. It's really sad because there are pro-life Democrats out there. They're just not represented right now. They're not represented whatsoever by their party, who is the party um, potential nominees. And it's just really, really sad. So that's my thoughts on 2020. The debates are coming up. I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting comments. I will be very interesting to see how abortion is addressed in the Democratic debates. I will be looking forward to see if they're actually asked about their complete, horrific, extreme support, which, by the way, most of the country disagrees with. Only 7% of millennials agree with the Democratic Party's platform on abortion. Only 7%. The vast majority of millennials want abortion restrictions in, in at least the first trimester or completely banned altogether. And they want, they do not support the extremism of the the Democratic platform. All right, next question. I have been getting questions about makeup. This is from a Insta story I did a couple of weeks ago about all these makeup companies that are supporting Planned Parenthood and abortion. They just came out about it. So Mac Cosmetics, so owned by Estee Lauder, Glossier, a few others. It's really sad. And I've been using a Mac product for concealer for a long time. I've really liked it, and I had to change because I cannot support companies that ultimately so blatantly support abortion. So I got a lot of great recommendations from you. You guys have asked what I have ended up going with. I'm actually still experimenting. I like to try makeup for a while before really committing. And right now I'm trying out, it's a bit of an expensive product, but it is um, so far, I think pretty good. It's Laura Mercier's Flawless Fusion Concealer for those interested. I actually got feedback, not just from a lot of women on this, but even some men who were telling me about products their wives use. So thanks for that. But Laura Mercier's Flawless Fusion Concealer, I'll let you know how it, how it fares. That's my update. My understanding is they do not support abortion or Planned Parenthood. Obviously we'll keep an eye on it to make sure that that does not change. All right. Just a couple more questions because this is a longer episode. I did get a few questions about prayer routine. Um, people asking how I put prayer first, how I put God first And I will briefly share what I try to do daily. So daily, I try to make time for mental prayer. So that's prayer with just me, my Bible, or my prayer book, or spiritual book, and my journal. And I get to just talk to God directly. So I try to do 30 minutes a day of that time set aside. Sometimes it gets to be 10 minutes here, 20 minutes here. But it's trying to really set aside time to actually listen and tell God everything, um, and to talk to not just God, but Christ and the Holy Spirit. I also try to go to Mass every day. Um, sometimes I don't make it every day when I'm traveling or for other reasons, but I try to do Mass daily. That's been really powerful for me and sustaining for me because it's getting to actually receive Jesus in the Eucharist. You know, this is Jesus who told us throughout the New Testament to receive Him and to um, do this in mem- remembrance of Him. And He said, if you eat my blood or if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then he will have a part in me and he is actually telling us to be united with him. I will talk more about that in a future episode. A lot of questions I actually got about my, my faith, my Catholicism, why I'm Catholic. I became Catholic when I was 20. I do want to get into that in another episode. We're running out of time for today. Um, I also got a bunch of other questions related to the border and related to some other hot button political issues. I do want to get in depth on those topics. And I will be doing that in future episodes because I need to wind today's up or wind today's down. <laughs> Finish today's up. So, um, so yeah. Next episode will be on the border crisis and that whole situation. And I hope you guys listen. I hope today's episode was interesting. It was a little bit of a mixed bag. I talked about sex myths and talked about the Democratic candidates and answered some other questions, but keep the questions coming. I love them. Keep the comments coming. Again, if you can, if you find this podcast interesting, please rate and review it. Subscribe. All your reviews help the podcast reach more people. I love getting your reviews, whether it's just hitting five stars or actually writing something out. I love that. Thank you so much. I think we're at 750 or almost 800. I'm trying to get to a 1,000. That's a goal. Um, thank you very much for the support there. And then if you want to support the podcast in any other way, you can go to lilaroeshow.com. You can email me. There's actually a way to even donate. I will be doing guests in the in, in the future, interviewing guests. And this podcast will be filmed in the future as I raise the support for that. So thank you for your ongoing support. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless.